Hey guys, this is Jordan, your show host, and also one of the founders of the Tribe Mastermind. I just wanted to give you guys a little shout out to let you know that we got something special going on with Tribe Mastermind. This is a high level mastermind for property management entrepreneurs that are interested in talking about the big picture. Yes, most certainly business, the tactical, the strategic, but also the big why behind why we're on this journey together. So if you're interested in learning more about Tribe, what this mastermind looks like, you can get more details at tribemastermind.com. Check it out. Love to see you there. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, Closers, to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I have my esteemed guest, Scott Fritz, on the show. Scott, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So, Scott, you're going to be speaking at PM Grow in about a month. Yes. I'm super excited about that. I wanted to do some lead-in to kind of talk about your background so folks have some context. Let's start there. What does your entrepreneurial journey look like? Yeah, well, uh, wow. I mean, I was selling stuff in, on the playground as a kid, so I grew up an entrepreneurial um, mindset with that. And uh, as we've talked, my, my father was an entrepreneur, my grandfather was an entrepreneur, actually my, my mom's side, her father was an entrepreneur as well. So kind of grew up in that. Um, went to school, went to Baylor, graduated, went to work for PepsiCo for five years and uh, realized that uh, if I was gonna keep working for the man, I was gonna have to you know kiss you know what and get more letters after my name and that really wasn't my thing. So I uh, met a business partner, started a company called Human Capital. I was a PEO, this is in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, grew it over uh, 10 years and sold it in 2007. So Can you explain what a PEO is for sure, those who don't know? Sure, a professional employer organization. So it would be like Insperity is a big player in that, publicly traded. Uh, we outsourced HR payroll and benefits uh, and handled all the HR side for our company. So we would, we would hire on a company and co-employ with them is what it's termed as. And we have become their outsourced HR department. Got it. And that 10-year journey ended when? Uh, 2007. So we started in 97, sold it in 2007. What have you been doing since 2007? Yeah, so uh, I was helping a couple entrepreneurs uh, transition out of their business and sell. Uh, so I did that for a couple of years. And as I was doing speaking uh, gigs, talking about what I'd done, people said, well, are you going to ever, ever write a book about this? I was like, ah, I don't really want to write a book. So finally I said, all right, it's a bucket list thing. I'll write a book. So I wrote a book called The 40-Hour Work Year, which came out in 2010. Uh, in less than six months, I went from two guys I was kind of helping sell their business to 16 coaching clients because they picked up the book and said, hey, can you do for we us yeah, what we did for you? So it turned into a marketing tool. Um, and so that was 2010. So the last eight, nine years, I've been coaching. Uh, I do angel investing. So I've invested in 37 deals uh, since 2000. I'm in six of those right now. Do some speaking, like I said, be speaking at your event and, uh, you know, living the dream, as I say. So I've read the book and I'm excited for other people to read the book. But for those that haven't, that are watching this interview right now, what do you feel is unique or different about your perspective? So many business coaches, what do you kind of emphasize what's really important to you that stands out? Yeah, good question. So I always say, you know, even though I exited, uh, the book is about my story Mm -hmm. over those uh, really four years uh, from 04 through 07. Uh, but whether you're going to exit or not, you should create a company that could be exited at any time. So whether it's an evergreen or a legacy business or you do want to exit, 
once you get your company running that way, you truly can become a passive investor in your own business, which is what the book's about. So it takes you from uh, not just in and on the business, like an e-myth concept, but to the next level, which is not even working on your business at all. It mm -hmm. just becomes a passive investment. At least having the optionality to Correct. do so. Not advocating for people to stay in or out. Correct. But the option, so that's that really resonates with me. We recently rolled out an accounting standard mm -hmm. for the National Association of Residential Property Managers. And when we gave a presentation, we defined financial freedom as just that. You could pay somebody else to do your job at a market-based wage and still show a profit. Correct. All right, so we're on the same page about that. Correct. So that's super exciting to me. Correct. So in terms of the actual mechanics and ways that you help companies get there, when a company typically comes for you, for, to you for consulting, like what's the trigger event for them to want to raise their hand? Yeah, so typically, again, it's, it's right on spot with what I do. So somebody has worked with me, they meet a, a friend through an organization or at, you know, at an event and say, hey, I work with this guy. He took me from working 80, 90 hours a week to 80, 90 hours a month to eight or nine hours a month. So most people don't really go to the 40 hour work year, although they could, they just stay more engaged. So that's kind of the trigger. So I meet with somebody, the first question I ask them is, and it's, it's in my book as well as I say, would you buy your own company? So that's the trigger question. And most people will laugh or they'll look away or they won't, you know, they don't, they never really thought of that, which was a main event in my life. It was a mindset shift. Because if I want to buy my own company, how am I running it? Nobody's probably going to buy it. And then I ask them, okay, so you would buy it, what would you pay? And then they give me a number typically, and it's it's probably a lot higher than anybody else would pay, but, <laughs> but that's their number. Sure. And then my third question is, well, what's your number to exit? So where we start is, if you would pay five million for your business, but your number to exit's 10, well, we know what we gotta do. We gotta come up with a plan to close that $5 million gap. Right, right. And so that's the trigger or that's the entry point. All right, so all of this at the end of the day, we're talking about mindset psychology. What does the book cost on Amazon, like 20 bucks? Oh, it's like 13. All right, $13 book. Yeah. And if you employ it, could have a radical impact oh. on your business, as is the case with many books. Correct. So it's typically not a knowledge problem. What do you see as the, the hang-ups or the stories that prevent people from stepping up to this higher leverage function within the business? Right. Well, as you know, as entrepreneurs, and I, I tell anybody this, if, if somebody wants to engage me, I have two questions. Are you coachable? And will you take action? but I need both. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who are not coachable. We all know those. I mean, they're out there and then they won't be at your event because sure. they're not coachable. Right, right. But a lot of people go to that event and they're great. They're well-meaning, very great intentioned. They love all the, the you know, the rah-rah and the knowledge they got, but they don't go back and take action. Or if they do take action, they take action for a couple of weeks and then it just falls mm -hmm. back to routine. Mm -hmm. So what I believe is the real key, the real difference, and the reason why we grew so quickly in 10 years is, you know, action was my middle name. I mean, that's what I did. I, I tell people, you know, I, I was TGI Monday. Like, I hated Fridays because I wanted to get back to it right, on right. Monday, you know. Right. Weekends sucked for me. I mean, weekends I was working because in the beginning, because I didn't know anything different, but I really couldn't go after what I wanted to do, which was grow the business. Mm -hmm. So it's coachable and take action. And a lot of people don't like it. That's that simple. They yeah. want some complicated 17, you know, workbook program. I don't think you need that. Mm -hmm. It's a mindset again. Um, and there are people too who say they're coachable, but when you actually start talking to them or taking them through the process, they kind of look at you and like, oh, we've done that before. We've tried and I said, okay, well, fine. Then I guess you don't need the coaching. Mm -hmm. So they, they have to have both. Right. Um, and I'm not, fortunately, I'm at a stage in my life where, you know, enjoy life is number one for me. So mm -hmm. I usually just work with people that get it. They want to take their 
82% up to a 98%, and that's what I help them do. Mm-hmm. I don't really work with most people who are already at 40 or 50 because it's, they got a long way to go to get to that 80. So right. I'll talk to them, right. but I usually don't work with them. They're not quite to that next level yet. Which is really the pervert, most perverse aspect of personal development. The people that need it most mm-hmm. will pay the least for it. Right. The people that need it the, uh, the least, that are already just balling, doing so well, will yeah. pay obscene amounts of money oh, for it. Yeah, yeah. Without even thinking about it. I mean, I've got a client in Kansas City who, you know, I kind of thought we got, we were done. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, about 50 million a year, 300 and some employees. And I just got done with the whole quarterly program last year. So, all right, well, it's been great. I'll see you guys next year for your annual plan. They go, no, no, we want to we want to keep the quarterlies going. <laughs> okay, we'll keep the quarterlies going. Again, though, already, I mean, right. killing it, growing it. I mean, mm-hmm. monster success uh, and two partners just ready to go to the next level. Um, mm-hmm. They want to they really, they want a billion-dollar company is what they want. And so that's a whole other level. So when you see success, it looks simple. When you see it thriving and working, the way that it gets explained in the headlines really tends to oversimplify what's going on there. What I find is that oftentimes the complexity that is wanted by the business owner is in the hopes that with enough complexity and forethought, I'm going to be able to de-risk the action or the outcome and make it less messy. When the truth is, taking action is messy. Oh, yeah. Coming yeah. in, busting heads, changing comp. I mean, it's yeah. that's where I think a lot of the resistance comes from. Have yeah. you experienced the same thing? I absolutely. I mean, it, so if I meet somebody for the first time, typically at that level, they've already got their sales under control, whether they're doing it or they have somebody. They may or may not have a strong COO or, or director of ops, and they probably have an okay controller, maybe even a CFO. Typically, but what they haven't built is what I call the executive team or mm. the leadership team, mm. which is a team of five to seven people, not the owner, who can run the business without you. I mean, totally run the business, hit the targets, hit the metrics, or exceed them, like my team did, and you can move anywhere you want. I mean, my company's based in Michigan. I lived in Vegas. I mean, it ran itself. I visited one time a year. That was it, because I built that team. Now, building that team, though, that took time and effort. Like you said, it was messy. I mean, we changed out two different positions in that. Um, executive team over the four years Um, so it wasn't like it was a set team and you're just you know unicorns and rainbows I mean you had to really work with them and you had to hold people accountable and themselves need to be accountable to those performance metrics so let's talk about time frame yeah when's the right time to do that doing that as quickly as possible Sounds great. There's this weird kind of balance between entrepreneurs hearing you got to work on the business, on the business, on the business, less direction on what you would need to do to work on the business. Because as soon as you go from working in it to on it, you are now introducing a salary burden on the business when you're acting in that management capacity. You've got to earn your keep. At what point does it make sense to, to justify making this transition? And so, and I talk about this in the book, I had a trigger point that made this happen, which was quite honestly, my wife wanted to move out of the cold into somewhere sunny and nice. Good for her. And I said, great. I didn't, I was great with that. So we, that was the trigger point. And basically Karen and I had the conversation. I said, look, we can sell the company or you can buy me out because I'm not going to be flying back here every week to run the business (laughs) or we can build the business so it can run without us. And so we put together what we called the transition plan, very sexy name, Mm -hmm. uh, to transition ourselves out of the business over a year. So from the date we announced we were doing it to the date I moved was a year. And I did move exactly one year to the day from when we announced it. And by the way, 9-11 happened during that. So that put a little bit of a bump in our plan, but we still executed, totally transitioned, transitioned out of the business in about 16, 18 months. 
from where we were to that point. So to your question about the salary burden, the way Karen and I did this, is we basically took major pay cuts. Mm -hmm. We took about 60% pay cuts mm -hmm. for that year and put that money into the people, the systems, we bought a building, infrastructure, marketing, all that. Interestingly enough, Jordan, in nine months, including 9-11, I was back to making what I was making when I took the pay mm. cut nine months earlier. Mm. Because I now realized, well, why am I doing these 17 things? I should be doing these three things that mm -hmm. I'm really good at and focused on and let other people who are way better at those 14 do them. And it's, it's just a leverage model. I mean, it's not anything I came up with that was new. It was taking the action and actually doing it, mm -hmm. which is where most people get stuck. I call it the 80% rule. Okay, so I had to be okay with 80%. Meaning, if that person did 80% right. of the work right. as well as I would have, mm -hmm. I gotta be okay with that. Because mm -hmm. if you're such a control freak that it's gotta be you every time, 100%, right. I don't think you can ever build that team and step away. If you wanna be the smartest person in the room, every time. it's gotta continue to be a small room. Correct, very small. So when we think about the, the incentivization, immediately when folks think about bringing in that key executive, comp comes up. Don't I need to give them a big chunk of the business to keep them motivated? How did you handle that yourself? Yeah. So we were a very, um, you know, type A driven organization. So again, when I tell people what I did, I explained to them, look, you have to look at your own company, your own culture, right. and the, way you, the way you run it. Context. This works very well. And what I had exactly the context, it doesn't necessarily work for every company. I think elements of it work for every company, but not the exact roadmap. Mm -hmm. So it's just bits and pieces. So we paid 20% below market base wage. So if you're making hundred grand and you're a high level executive that we're gonna take a director level, let's say at hundred grand, we'd offer you 80, but your bonus, whatever your bonus was at the previous operation was hundred percent up. So we double it. So if you could make 30, we'd make it so that you could make 60 mm -hmm. at your bonus. So technically you're offsetting it and making more money. Mm -hmm. Plus you're gonna be actually running the business as what I call an intrapreneur. Hmm. Not an entrepreneur, which is outside, an entrepreneur inside. I have a whole program that I take people through, the quarterly program. It's called Entrepreneur, Developing Entrepreneurs in Your Business. Mm -hmm. These are people who think like a business owner in the context of the business, not in the context of starting 17 companies a year, mm -hmm. like most entrepreneurs. Um, so once you do that and you get that person in line, and then our basic goal was then, if that person had other executives they needed to hire, and we're not talking C-level here, we're talking managers and directors, mm -hmm. but you still need that team. It was up to them to then model that 80-20 and go out and hire people to work for them under that same model. He'll say, well, Scott, that's great and it worked in your situation, but I don't think it didn't work that much. I've done this with over a dozen entrepreneurs. They've said, I need this person. And I say, let's go take them. And we structured the deal to go get that person. This isn't somebody you're gonna run an ad for because they're already very well compensated working somewhere else. Mm -hmm. You've gotta go take them like a headhunter would take them. Mm -hmm. So. And most entrepreneurs, when I say to them, who is the one person you would take to fill this role? They know who that person is. Right. They've scouted them. Mm -hmm. They just haven't pulled the trigger again, take action, because of limiting beliefs that they can't afford them or right. they don't want to work there. Those are limiting beliefs. Mm -hmm. You need to have that conversation with the person. I mean, I've got story after story of entrepreneurs who've gone and taken people way more qualified than they thought they could afford right. and got them to come work for their company. Oh, I love it. So yeah. what I would say is that the idea that it's always a who problem 
it sounds intellectual until you taste it, right? Until right. you get the who, right. and then you're like, wow, maybe everything's a who problem. Right. Right. In this situation, you just highlighted the fact that the person that you want is gainfully employed. Correct. This is like hiring salespeople for small businesses. Right. A salesperson thinks to, my, th thinks to themselves, you know, I don't have a ton of infrastructure in the sales department. It's not really systematized, but if I can just get this really high alpha dominant salesperson to come in, right. and it's like, you know what? That person exists, yep. and they're getting paid a quarter million dollars working for a pharmaceutical company yep. and they ain't working for you right. so if you can't if you can't hire that kind of person you need some some infrastructure you yeah. need to subsidize to get off of thinking it's all about charisma have some structure or if you want that person the arrangement needs to look a lot different yeah going back to to comp what is your just to take it head on one more time what is your basic view on profit sharing versus equity so uh we never gave ownership uh, twice a year, we opened up uh, founder units. So we had LLCs. By the way, so this is a my business was complicated from that standpoint. So we had 23 entities spread over 42 states. So this was not like you just here's your one company. So, but the the parent company, which was Human Capital, uh, Karen and I once twice a year opened up founder units, minimum fifty thousand buy-in. So you could buy up, you know, starting at 50,000 up, nobody ever went past 50, only two people ever bought in, they both bought in at 50,000. Mm -hmm. You could buy founder units in the business. Wow. So we did that starting in the year that we started the transition. So 2002, all the way through the sale, through, through 2007. So twice a year you'd come in and buy, you know, and we just changed the valuation base as the company grew. So 50,000 bought you a lot more in 02 than it did in 06, but you could still buy in at 50,000 tranches. Hey, Daniel Craig with Profit Coach here. You've probably heard Jordan talk on the podcast about the NARPM accounting standards that we authored on behalf of NARPM. This groundbreaking initiative standardizes financial reporting for the property management industry, and we're committed to helping as many companies as possible get on the standard this year. If you'd like to get converted, we'd love to help with one of our two conversion packages. The first gets you converted on a go-forward basis only, and the second actually converts you on a historical basis going back two years, and that comes with a comprehensive financial performance report that provides a deep dive analysis of your financial performance in over 30 financial KPIs and compares your performance to key industry financial benchmarks. Go to pmprofitcoach.com forward slash NAS for details and be sure to mention this ad for a special 10% off discount. All right, so I love this because you're talking about buy-in, right. skin in the game. Exactly. You want a piece, you want to say, hey, because from the team member's perspective, the story is, well, you want me to be motivated, I gotta have some skin in the game. Well, why not do that in reverse? Right. If you want a piece, put a little cash in. So you're saying you only had two people take you up on that. Yep, yep. Amazing. But the offer was there for everybody. Mm -hmm. So if that was an objection or a hang up for somebody, it would be satiated. Yeah, it was not. Um, let me back up a second. So salaried employees and up. Right, of course. Too. So hourly right. part-time didn't get the offer. But anybody salaried and up, it was set up for them to buy in. Got it. Okay. What about on the, um, taking it from a different angle, fundraising? Did mm -hmm. the business take on any, any capital? How did you finance the business? So uh, we took out an SBA loan before we started the business, 150 grand. That was it. That was all the cash we ever brought into the business. Uh, as I talk about in the book, we paid it off a year and a half later because I was tired of the bank basically telling me everything What's I could and couldn't do. <laughs> Covenants were, you know, this deep. Right. Um, paid a fee, paid a fine and got out of the loan and never had another investor or outside capital or loan of any sort. 
So when you think about the forms of capital investment, you could talk about sweat equity, it could be mentorship, it could be money. For a business owner that feels a real gap between where they're at and where they think they could take it, how would you advise them to think about bringing in advisors and mentors? You get everything from your uncle who ran a completely unrelated business to um, a, to an angel, to your local Vistage guy. Like, How would you advise somebody to think about mentorship? And I think that the answer is, which most people would say, is it depends. Meaning, how are you wired? How do you work with people? Mm -hmm. um, so the people that I've invested in and my angel investing, they want that contact. So separate from me stroking a check in a business, I have a separate coaching agreement with that company that they have to agree to. So if you want my money in your business, you've got to agree to this coaching uh, setup mm -hmm. or advisory board setup. I have done some advisory boards. But I will not just now you know, what I call spray and pray, just throw a check, check at something and hope it works out. Because I did some of those in the past and you know how most of them turned out, not mm -hmm. so good. Um, so if you like that format and you really want to be coachable and take action, then you work well with me, then I would invest in your company. Uh, I really pretty much talk 80% of the people that come to me out of bringing on money. I do, because really you shouldn't. I don't think you should. Uh, we bootstrapped it. I mean, 150 grand is not bootstrapping, but it's not a whole lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, and just leverage our houses, and we put our houses up as equity and got the got the loan. Um, now, if you're already at a stage of business, which I mean, you're rolling along pretty good, and you want money to go acquire other companies, that's a whole different conversation. Mm -hmm. But if you're just wanting money for operations or to afford that COO or to do marketing or buy a building, I think you find a way to do that without taking on outside money. So I always say the four F's, right? Most people talk about the three F's. I talk about the four F's. Friends, family, fools, and founders, mm -hmm. right? The four F's. A lot of the founders forget the founder part. Mm -hmm. They've heard the friends, family, and fools. Well, there's also the founder part. So I have this conversation with a lot of people. You know, what's your net worth? I'm oh, a net worth 600, 700,000. Okay, well, why are you raising 250 grand? Mm -hmm. Leverage what you have. Well, no, I mean, you know, OPM, other people's money. I go, yeah, OPM is opium. OPI. It turns into a, it turns <laughs> into a drug. Yeah, slow. It does. So why do that? I mean, I talk most people out of raising money. Um, and, and the ones that where I do invest in, they're usually not only a fit with me personality-wise, mm -hmm. but their goal is in line with what my goal would be. So again, if you're going to raise money, you got to realize this: you're bringing on a business partner. You might not think it's that. But you are. They are a business partner. More than likely, if they know what they're doing, they have an exit that they planned on. So they either want, you know, typically 18 to 25 percent a year on their money, and they want an exit of four to ten times what they put in. Mm -hmm. And you got to be clear about that. And if your exit, if if I'm investing with you in a business, and I say, hey, in five years, we're going to grow this to whatever, 12 million, we're going to sell it, and you're at three million and you say, well, I don't think that's possible and I don't want to sell it, then that's a non-starter. Mm -hmm. So begin with the end of mind, as the saying goes, right? And Karen and I planned to sell our business in 10 years. Mm -hmm. It was in our business plan. We sold in 10 years and three months. So let's talk about governance, which which uh, is not necessarily the same thing. You can have a traditional board member structure and some of those could be investors, but they could also not be. For my business True. lead simple, we have a board member, they didn't invest, it's really value added. How did you handle governance? Was it just you and Karen or did you bring in other parties? Yeah, so it was just Karen and myself. Uh, we So I was, I was a part of YEO, Young Entrepreneurs Organization. It's now called EO because we all got gray and old, they got right. rid of the Y. But um, I used my forum and my connections through EO as my sort of board of advisors. And I was very involved. I mean, we're talking like weekly, I was meeting with these people and other business people. So that's kind of how I 
put together an advisory board. We did not have a formal board or board of advisors in our company. Uh, what really happened, honestly, was our executive team kind of became our board because they were running the company. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of look at it this way. If, if you're still going to stay real involved in running the business and you have a role, you're CEO and you're overseeing, I think it's, I think a board of advisors or a, director, a board of directors is great. If you want to take the path I did and step out of your business and become founder and let a team run it, I'm not so sure you need a board of directors and advisors at, at the level we were at. And if you want to go big, you know, pro level and go public someday, mm -hmm. of course you need that. I mean, you've got to have that track record, uh, et cetera. I think there's a lot of money and time and effort put into some of these things that, you know, they haven't necessarily cut up the vegetables yet and they're already throwing stuff in the pot. Mm -hmm. I think there's more that can be done um, at a lower uh, price point or involvement point, mm -hmm. um, which includes bringing in a coach or bringing in a couple of coaches or a mentor. I mean, I have a lot of friends who they've got a they've got a coach coaching company that works with their team, and then they bring me in once in a year, or I work with the CEO one on one, mm -hmm. and that's a nice combination too. In a lot of ways, you're you're getting a lot more bang for the buck, I think, in that versus a board of advisors. Just my own, my, own opinion, my own view of it. So what's not negotiable here, though, is getting feedback from people outside the building. Correct. This form, that form, it's Correct. an essential part of the mix. Oh, absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about more about EO. Heard about it a million times. It's something that I've entertained but haven't made a full commitment with. Obviously, there are other organizations. It's not the only one. But yeah. what's the value that you see in being part of EO? Yeah, so, um, so when I started, I joined in 2000. Um, so I, my business would have been eh, probably around 20 million, 25 million. But remember, the top line is very large in my business. So when I say 25 million, that's all billable receipts. Mm -hmm. So that's payroll, insurance, that's everything, taxes, everything. Margin of about four, four and a half percent. So we were about a $1 million business at that time. Got it. Gross, gross margin. Mm -hmm. About a million dollar business. We have to be a million dollar business to get into EO. So you have to be a founder, co-founder, majority owner, mm -hmm. and a million dollars a year in top line. That gets you into EO. Mm -hmm. um, so for me at that time, I had nobody. Uh, Karen was my business partner, but uh, we were not, although we got along okay, we were not like advising each other or she ran ops, I ran sales. That's mm -hmm. pretty much what it was. I needed that board of advisors, which is what forum is called inside EO. They have a thing called forum, which you meet once a month. You're not, nobody in that group, it's five to 10 people, is in the same business. So you meet once a month and you do deep dives into business issues, personal issues, and everything going on as an entrepreneur. So what you learn the first time when you go when you go to an EO forum is that I'm not alone, I'm not nuts, I'm not emotionally unstable. Everybody else is just like me. Right. And I even started to say in EO, it's like really the people in EO are the normal ones. It's everybody else that's crazy, <laughs> right? I mean, honestly, that's how I view it, honestly. But um, so it gives you that. It gives you tons of social. So if you really want to get involved, there's all kinds of activities, speakers, learning events. There's global events, they call them universities. You can go around the globe and go to different, you know, you know, 500 person called universities with teaching, social, you know, I mean, you're sailing. I mean, the first university I went to was in Sydney, Australia. I mean, you're sailing on Sydney Harbor on, on mega yachts with other EOers out there. I mean, how else would you be doing that right. other than that organization? Right. Or if you were worth, you know, you'd have to have some serious money to be pulling those stunts without an organization like EO. Right. Because they give you access and they cover, you know, the, the, the cost sharing of it all right. is gigantic right mm -hmm. i mean i was at, i was at dinner at the top of the world bank with the world bank president with 20 <laughs> other eoers wow. how would i ever get into that wow crazy other than eo mm -hmm. I mean, it goes on and on i got listen list of these stories um so it's great from that and then of course my, i always say your network equals your net worth 
the network is gigantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, 85 to 90% of all my business dealings over the last 10 plus years has been EO or YPO connected. So YPO is Young Presidents Organization. It's a similar organization, but not identical. It's more uh, hired guns, CEOs, and mm. family businesses. Mm-hmm. EO is entrepreneurs only. So, I mean, there's only entrepreneurs in there. Um, the network is just gigantic. I mean, most of my angel deals that come across come from other EO, YPOers. Um, a lot of my clients, obviously, are either in or have been mm-hmm. in EO or YPO because they get it. Um, they understand taking action. They understand being coachable. They understand what we call thirst for learning. Like mm-hmm. They always want to learn, lifelong right. learners. Right, 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 right. I mean, if you're not a lifelong learner, I, I wouldn't. What are you doing here? Yeah. What's the point? 100%. So a big part of what you're talking about is the catharsis that comes from being with like-minded people. And I think this is part of the mindset soft game side of business that doesn't get talked about enough. What I have found is that the business is a reflection of the entrepreneur, their thoughts and beliefs about themselves. What do you see as being the entrepreneur's journey in terms of self-acceptance? You just said it a second ago. We're not weird. Everybody else is weird. It certainly feels that way sitting on this side of the chair. Like like this is a, a healthy, functional, very useful way to be. It seems disruptive and inconvenient to a lot of other folks. What do you think an entrepreneur needs to accept about themselves in order to be as successful as possible? Well, again, and you said this earlier, there's tons of books and, and things about this, right? So build on your strengths, right? Marcus Buckingham, great book, Build on Your Strengths. When I kind of got that through my head that I needed to quit wearing all the hats, so to speak, and do everything, just do a bunch of things half-assed, not doing them very well at all, and realize here's my strengths, here's what I'm really good at, and then I'm really good at like these three things. There's probably 10 that I'm good at, but there's three I'm really good at. That was the moment for me from shifting and realizing I got to get this other stuff off my plate, mm-hmm. which, I, which I go through in the book. I think a lot of, I think a lot of, and again, so my filter right now, and it has been for 15 years, is enjoy life, make money, do deals, in that order. And what I talk about in the book is it used to be do deals, make money, enjoy life. When you, once you've earned it. Yeah, it was totally backwards. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was a deal junkie, I still am a deal junkie. That's why I do angel deals. It right. feeds my addiction right. to deals <laughs> without getting me bankrupt. Because if I actually went into all these deals, I'd be broke. Right. So it's, it's, it gives me, the, it gives me that, that high, that adrenaline rush, that fulfillment of being in deals and doing deals without totally, you know, screwing up my life and being divorced and everybody hating, which is what happens. So, I mean, I've got friends who no they, they can't control themselves. They get into everything. They go in all the way in and they're, they're miserable. Well, the idea is a, the idea of an entrepreneur engaging in compulsive behavior is not a far stretch, no, right? Absolutely. No, we are that way. ADD, I mean, there's a reason, right? What I call the focus. It's, you know, you know, squirrel, shiny penny syndrome, whatever you want to call it. It's part of what makes us great entrepreneurs. Absolutely. I think without it, I don't know that you're you're more of a business owner than an entrepreneur. Um, But you've got to get that under control to whatever level you need to get it under control. Right. I I believe that. So I found angel investing as my outlet. Mm -hmm. That's what saved me. And that's where the idea of become a passive investor in your own business came from in that I don't have to be here every day being in charge of people, being the, right. know, I won't knock on the table, but you know, got a minute, got a minute, always getting interrupted. I can be the passive investor in my own business. Right. I, I just have to decide that. I love it. This is beautiful. I'm having an epiphany here. So the angel deals are like the methadone of instead of having to go back and constantly start new businesses. Exactly. Okay. Take note on that. 
The thing you said a second ago that was fascinating to me is the distinction you made between an entrepreneur versus a business owner. Yeah. You said before, context is everything. Know yourself, know what lane you're in. Right. Don't have the guilt trip from right. reading Fortune Magazine and thinking, I need to be Mark Cuban, right. I need to be Elon right. Musk. Right. You need to be the best version of yourself. Yeah. What does that distinction between entrepreneur and business owner mean? And how do you know what bucket you fall in? Yeah, so there's a lot to talk to about the entrepreneurial CEO. So what, what you, I believe anyway, is you go through your business career in your company that you started, you start to see major, I did, major deficiencies in certain areas or things where if you know you have to go do that task that day, you do everything to avoid it, right? I mean, you, you go, it's beyond even procrastination. You're like making up things you got to go do so you don't have to deal with that issue. Start taking note of those and writing them down. And what I talk about in the book is the decision matrix. So the decision matrix is those types of things. You, when Karen and I created the decision matrix, there was 48 items that we had to touch in the business. Within about a year, it was down to seven. So we'd identified those parts that we needed nothing to do with and mm -hmm. get out of your own way, hire mm -hmm. people who are way better at it, and transition that to other people. So I think the, the main thing you start to realize is if you're a true entrepreneur, you want to move out of as many of those boxes mm -hmm. as possible. If you're a business owner, it may not be as big of an issue to you. You you don't have shiny penny syndrome. You're not looking for the next big thing. You might really enjoy that stuff. You might really enjoy being that person. You know, you, you work in a bank, you love working in a bank, you probably should stay in working in a bank. Mm -hmm. um, to your point earlier, maybe you, don't, you shouldn't even think about jumping off that cliff. Or if you do, you should be the ops side of it and let somebody who really mm -hmm. has that entrepreneurial mm -hmm. engine be that person the visionary, the driver type person. Uh, Karen was entrepreneurial and she is entrepreneurial. She went out and started other businesses. But I would say during that time of our business, I was more of that person in the relationship, mainly because she was on the op side and she was fine with that. Mm. So I think too, I see this a lot, which you probably have, you get in business with somebody who's really a lot like you, mm -hmm. especially if they're entrepreneurial and it doesn't necessarily go so well um, because you both want to cook the same meal every night. Well, only one, you know, one cook in the kitchen, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you have that complimentary person, I see this a lot, uh, done this a lot, find that complimentary person to you and your business. And I think you really can, if you're an entrepreneur, be more entrepreneurial because mm -hmm. you're not having to be in to run the business every day. Um, now again, there's a whole other side of this, which comes along, which I've heard many people say this stage versus age. Okay. So I don't necessarily believe you have to be young to start a business. Mm -hmm. I think you can be in your 50s. You can be retired. Retired. You can be an empty nester. But if the stage of your life you're in is where you still need con constant income coming in or you have bills you have to pay, I don't think probably an entrepreneurial lifestyle is for you. Mm -hmm. Because I think people get in this concept of, oh, I'm going to go take this 500 grand, start a business, and it's going to turn into $5 million mm -hmm. in five years. All right. Way more failures. I mean, there's a reason we know about the names we know about because they're so rare. Mm -hmm. There's a reason there's only one Google and one Facebook and one, you know, on and on and on. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a few really great companies, but of the thousands, hundreds of thousands that aren't around um, because I think the person was more of a business owner than an entrepreneur. And I think it's back to risk analysis again. 100%. So let's talk about when you conflate these roles. When you conflate these roles and you're actually an entrepreneur, you, you're giving yourself these guilt trips about, you know what, I, I really need to know accounting. A good CEO, they know the minutia of accounting. They're looking at the books and the numbers and they know about marketing and sales. And I'm a great salesman. You're doing all this stuff and you can't grow because you won't let go. That's what happens when the entrepreneur conflates these two roles. When the business owner conflates these two things, 
he runs an unprofitable operation because he needs to grow. I've got to grow. I've got to grow. We've got to add several hundred units. I don't really know how to do it. There's no historical evidence of that being happened. And I'm sacrificing all of my profit margin in the process. For that latter person that doesn't have the chops to aggressively grow, Mm -hmm. how would you advise them to optimize for the best possible outcome for that context of, of being more of a business owner? Yeah, so if they don't have the chops to actively grow, you have to go find that person. That's what I would say. So whether it's a business partner that you actually bring in actively into the business or you hire them, uh, again, I believe, so we created what I called the pod model or points of distribution. So it was like a franchise without the franchise. Uh, the pod system is something I've done in property management as well, as you know, somebody mm-hmm. I work with on that. Um, what you can do there then is you can leverage the ownership mentality and the entrepreneurial mentality without having to get into all the minutia. So you find somebody who, let's just use property management as an example. Sure. So you find a broker in a city who's been, has his own brokerage or her own brokerage and they've been selling uh, real estate or even managing properties and they're kind of stuck. They're not able to go to that next level. You bring in a partner like we did in Dallas that, that handles all the back office stuff and all the minutia and all the day-to-day grind mm-hmm. and the regulatory and compliance and the governance and mm-hmm. all those things. Now you're free to go out and do what you're really good at. And so those probably 20 to 25 hours a week that we're stuck doing that stuff, you've now outsourced that, not offshored it, outsourced it to somebody else who's really good at it, mm-hmm. has the engine already built. Mm. And now you can go spend those extra 20, 25 hours mm. building the business in that market. And that leverage is huge. And you don't even need a team. I mean, if you want to build a team on top of it, it can get even bigger. Mm. Um, so that's... That's the model we were moving to in the company I sold. Um, so we sold 170 million top line, 68 million of that was coming from the pods. And I told Karen, I said, if we don't sell this three years from now, the pods will be bigger than the organic growth and the sales team growth. That team is 12 sales guys. They don't have a small sales team, but the pods were outpacing them because of this, letting them do what they do great and they're not stuck in the operational or, or you know company organizational politics and all that. They're just growing their pods. So why did you employ the pod strategy given that you had this capacity to already grow? So, good question. So here's my thing. When I decided, it was 2003, right after, year after I moved out, moved to Vegas uh, for the transition plan, we were very strong in the Midwest. So we were in, I think, 18 states, 19 states. I knew if we were gonna get this company, my goal was to get to $100 million. That was my number at the time, I wanted to be a $100 million business. To get to a $100 million business and be sellable, to more people, we needed a bigger geographic footprint. I didn't think we'd get to 42, I thought we'd get to 30, 35 states, okay? I also knew that I didn't wanna do franchising, I'd tried it in a different model and I'd opened up branch offices and all that. Expensive, burned through a lot of good people, wasted a lot of money, it wasn't smart. I knew by partnering with other entrepreneurial-minded people who had, and so we used it as, as a, a vertical integrator, we'd go into a market where they already had a pool of customers that we could offer our service to and they just added our service to their service offer. Mm. So we immediately ramped up sales that were never there. It was just found business. So for example, we would never have gone into Washington State or Nevada or Arizona on our own being in Michigan. But with the pod, we immediately had access to those markets without having to spend a bazillion dollars on marketing or you know sales teams or you know campaigns, things like that. Mm-hmm. So that's how we did it. So our end, you know, again, again with the end in mind, my goal was to get as big as possible, as quickly as possible to sell. Somebody who's not in that mindset, if their mindset's more to build an organic or an evergreen business mm-hmm. or stay local or regional, it may not make sense to them. So again, you have to kind of 
think about what strategically are you moving towards right, right. and what gets you there the quickest. And that's another question I'll ask anybody as I talk about angel investing earlier. So people know, you know, I want a five-year exit. No more than that. I really want about three, but I'll take five. So if your goal is not to exit the business, then and we can't figure out a way how you can get me out, then mm -hmm. it's a non-starter. Sure, sure. But why is that only angel investing? Why aren't business owners doing it and entrepreneurs doing it in their own companies? 100%. So you got these three roles of the operator, the governance piece, and the equity holder. Most small business owners just look at it through the lens of the operator. Yep. This equity holder, the only upside that they get yep. is profit and asset value. Yep. And that person kind of gets neglected in the whole conversation. Oh, I had a conversation with a friend earlier today. He told me that he had a peer that started in business, the same model of business, the same time. My friend chose to run it as more of a lifestyle operation. Yeah. The business grew. It was what many people would look at and objectively say, that's really exciting. For whatever reason, how the circumstances turned out, he ended up merging into a larger conglomerate. And his equity piece was about the fifth of the size of this peer who didn't run it as a lifestyle. They ran it as a true, proper business focused on top line growth. Asset value is the part of the story that really doesn't yeah. get a lot of airtime. This is something that, that you talk about. When folks bring up the idea of business valuations, we very quickly leave the realm of reality and into fantasy. Right. How would you kind of walk somebody through realistically thinking through what the business is really worth? Yeah. And, and I start with what I call the ownership paradox in the book. And so it's a, it's a simple diagram of two arrows that intersect. Okay. And the, the up arrow is the value of the business and the down arrow is the, is the involvement of the owner in the business. Right. And the valuation is totally corresponding to how involved you are in the business, not mm -hmm. on the business. I'm talking in the business. Mm -hmm. So if you still got to make the donuts every day, as I like to say, you still got to be the go-to person. You got to sign off on almost everything, even though you pretend you don't. You are in the business. Your valuation is inversely lower mm -hmm. than the person who's not in the business sure. at all. Uh, even scarier, when you do go to sell, if you do go to sell, whatever that timeline is, or buy, get bought out part of it. Uh, what I call your, your add back or your, your time and money value to the company is going to be much lower. So for example, when Karen and I sold the company, we had not worked in or on the business, quite honestly, for four years. We definitely hadn't worked in the business for four years, on maybe for two years, but it was all visionary stuff. It was like the pod model and growing. It was not, I had no direct reports. I mean, I didn't, you know, I talked to the CEO once a month. That was mm -hmm. it. They ran mm -hmm. the business. So when we went to, to value the company, all that income that Karen and I were being paid as payroll, mm -hmm. and distri not distributions, that was counted anyway, all your payroll benefits, your perks, everything, which was a sizable six-figure number between the two of us, got added back to the bottom line right. because they didn't need to use that money to go hire people to right. replace us. Mm -hmm. We weren't in there running it anyway. Mm -hmm. And I do an exercise on that, which I'll share at the, at the, um, the presentation mm -hmm. about that. And I mean, it can be sizable. I mean, if you say it's $500,000 and you got paid a six time multiple, that's a $3 million chunk that you gave away if you stayed in there playing business owner mm -hmm. instead of step transitioning yourself out and letting a team run it. Mm -hmm. um, so those, those are things when you can really like turn the dial to in your business and bring huge numbers to the bottom line. And more importantly, I think get yourself out and go enjoy life. So when you say bottom line, in terms of frameworks for how you can value a business, you yeah. got EBITDA, you got a top line revenue multiple, you got seller discretionary earnings. Right. Right. Where do you kind of, how would you guide somebody that's somewhere between one and $3 million, even as a, a basic starting point to think about how to value a, 
their business? Well, again, you know way more about property management than I do, obviously, but my, my understanding of the industry is it's about, you know, it's probably a one and a half to two times. Top line-ish would be the valuation. Um, I think a service business, you're looking somewhere five to eight times unless you're going to sell to a public company. Um, I, have a, I have a friend who, who sold to a public company, sold to Grubhub, got 14 times. So when you start getting in those public, because you know- 14 times top line revenue? No, 14 times earnings. Got so it, net, okay. net income. Got EBITDA, it. 14 times EBITDA. Yep. Um, so if you start playing the public rule, so if you get a company that's valued at 21 times earnings, paying you 14, they gain seven right off the top sure. as far as reporting goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but most companies aren't going to sell to a public company. So I usually say, you know, four to eight times EBITDA typically, mm-hmm. uh, or, or some valuation on the top line. I would say, you know, somewhere like an insurance brokerage is typically one and a half to two times mm-hmm. top line. That basically your, your, your commissions that you're getting off your business. I think one and a half is probably safe. I think yeah. uh, a one times multiple on top line revenue is probably what, what you get if you didn't shop it aggressively. Correct. One right. and a half to two, depending on, on strategy. But you do mention EBITDA. Is EBITDA really relevant for a business that's a million dollars or smaller? Probably not. Probably not. I think you probably have to be five million or bigger for EBITDA to, to play a role. I mean, I, I think you know, in my experience, most companies of that size, you're going to have some form of a seller carry or some form of a right. know, arrangement with the with the buyer that makes the numbers work for everybody. Mm-hmm. That's what I've experienced. Um, I I typically I typically don't ever see a full buyout of a, of a company of that size. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but again, back to what I started with. The beauty of positioning your company so it runs without you is when you go to negotiate, you hold more chips than the buyer does mm-hmm. because you were not there running it at all. I mean, right. they truly are right. buying, they're buying an ATM. I mean, that's what the guy that bought us, he bought an ATM, things just kicking off cash. <laughs> he didn't have to change anything. In fact, Seth, who was my CEO, who was running the company, had a two-year employment agreement as part of the deal. He was there for four years. So not only did the buyer keep him on the two years of the employer agreement, mm-hmm. which he didn't have to, Kept them on another two years. Mm-hmm. I mean, that validates for me that not only do we have the right person, but we'd set up a company that could run totally without any owners. It's beautiful. Well, the other form of leverage is you don't have to sell. That's right. This isn't this isn't retirement, divorce, cancer, right. all of those right. types of circumstances. One of the events that can lead to sale is founder conflict. Oh, absolutely. Walk me through discussions on on partnerships. For somebody that's in a partnership or thinking about getting in one, how would you kind of set the expectations for how things could change over over time and how to deal with just the natural drama that can come up? Yeah, absolutely. And so I had a business partner, 50-50. Um, by the way, other than my, my coaching and speaking business, which is just me, I have partners in all my businesses. So I'm not a non-partner guy. Mm-hmm. Like I got to own everything and that kind of thing. Um, I think partnerships, when set up correctly, are the best thing in the world. And you can really leverage people's talents and grow things a lot quicker. Um, so in the early years, uh, we had a lot of less than friendly conversations in starting my business. Um, and again, this is where EO helped me as well. I learned a lot of great tools. Uh, a great easy tool that you can use with business partners is start, stop, continue. You may have heard of that. So when you meet with somebody, you say, I'm going to give you one to three things I'd like you to start doing. Mm. One to three things I'd like you to stop doing. Mm-hmm and three to 10 things I'd like you to continue doing. And so Karen and I started doing this and our fights went from six times a day to six times a week to six times a month to six times a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, simply using start, stop, continue um, because it's a conversational way to build your business without it's all personal or tit for tat or that sort of thing. So start, stop, continue is a, a great tool. Another thing about you know partnerships, and so I learned this as I was doing coaching. So about five years ago, I started a program called Partner Alignment Exercise. 
So I take business partners and I spend four to six hours with them. It's this close to marriage counseling. And we get them to five topics, five talking points. They might disagree on 150 things, but they're going to agree to these five things with their team. Mm -hmm. So we do the partner alignment session, usually the day before, the afternoon. And then the next day we do the strategic planning session. Mm -hmm. So when these partners who the executive team or the department managers, et cetera, have thought never get along on anything, they get up in front of the team and they present these five things they've agreed to in mm -hmm. the session before. Mm -hmm. And now they're really powerful and driving forward in the business. So it's alignment, right? If you don't have alignment, if the owners aren't aligned, your team knows that. Mm -hmm. You can pretend they don't. They do. I mean, my our, my team, our team knew when Karen and I weren't aligned on something. Right. It was very clear. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's one thing when your team's not aligned, but if the owners aren't aligned, if the captain of the vessel thinks you're going to Bermuda, if they're sailing to Bermuda, but the team said thought you were going to Hawaii, you probably have a problem. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. I mean, you see it over and over again. I mean, I interview, I've got an owner of a business, especially even a single owner. Was your team totally aligned on your vision for the next five to 10 years? Oh yeah, they got it. They know. We talk about it all the time. And then, okay, talk about it all the time. Do they know it? Are you okay with me going and asking them? And I'll go interview, like, you know, by the third person out of six, they're all like, what vision? What are you talking about? Mm. You mean, he wants to go get tickets to the Super Bowl next week? I mean, what vision? Mm -hmm. um, so that clarity, that transparency, that total alignment from ownership through mm -hmm. your executive team. That's really, that. if there's a secret sauce to how we did what we did, that was it. And so this is where the uh, mechanism of something like EOS can come in to, to guide everybody. Mechanics are, are sexy. Mechanics get butt in chairs to attend conferences, but the reality is there's a simplicity and a lightness in what you're talking about. The essence of what you're talking about is having the conversation. You're using this tool, that tool, whatever tool. The point is you're leaning into conflict, right. specifically in the founder relationship. And I would note that employee comp is another example of this. There's a desire to want to figure it out set it up and it can just run. We're not gonna have to revisit it. We don't wanna go in and break things. We don't wanna fire people. We don't wanna have the potential for, for conflict. The truth is operating agreements, they get stale, yep. right? Three to five years in, yep. the thing needs to be renegotiated, etc. How would you encourage somebody to set the expectation for just change in the partnership? Do you think that there is, am I missing out, man? Is there a holy grail of operating agreement that accounts for everything that could happen? Or is this just the sort of thing that just has to be revisited every so often? So again, and this gets into the, the characteristics of the people as well, right? And so when I do my talks, I get to a point in the talk where I talk about operating agreements, what I call buy-sell, different than operating agreement, the buy-sell. Mm -hmm. um, and I tell everybody, look, if you do not have a buy-sell, in your partnership, you're not, you're not a business partner, you don't need it, but you've got a business partner. You don't have a buy-sell. If you do nothing else from hearing my talk today, because I think there's about 20 things you should probably do, do the buy-sell. Please do the buy-sell, because that's that's the biggest thing that can happen in, in a negative way with the business partnership. So we had what, what's called a shotgun clause, which is basically if I offer you a number and you don't want it, then you have to buy me at that number because you didn't take it. That to me is the simplest, easiest type of a buy-sell to have. Um, it cuts through all the BS. There's no valuation needed. There's no voting of people. There's no, well, this was this and this, and you got to involve a CPA or mm -hmm. lawyers, or mm -hmm. which starts cutting in the number. So I recommend Shotgun Clause, which if you just, if your viewers just go look up Shotgun Clause, there's probably 50 simple templates they could use right. to put in place. Um, if you have business partners, um, that's what I highly recommend. That then is your buy sell, then you have your operating agreement, then if you had pods like we did, you then have your service management agreement with the pods. 
So those are kind of the three pillars of agreements we had in our business. So the point of the shotgun clause is that the, me the mechanics there are essentially meant to keep you honest. Correct. If Correct. you're not willing to, to, to purchase at this price. Hey, shut up. There you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I have partners in across my businesses, and it's probably been where the most turmoil and yeah. frustration has come from. Yeah. And so much of that was because I was just avoiding having hard conversations. And when you lean in, it doesn't mean that you stay in business, but it does mean that there's the opportunity for figuring out what works for everybody. Can you talk to me a little bit about, in the context of partnerships, I find that there are um, circumstances in which morality can get unnecessarily introduced into the conversation. We're not talking about fraud or embezzlement. Yeah. We're just talking about how you run it. When, you, when you're doing this partner alignment exercise, yeah. it seems like it's hard to really have anything productive happen. If it's you're a terrible person and you're a scumbag, it's not a useful conversation. Right. For folks that are in real loggerheads, how do you help them get past that all that emotional baggage? Right. No, great. So... Most of the people that I do a partner alignment session with are not in that whatever. drama. Yeah, they're, well, they might be in drama, but it's not to that point where they're calling names got not on a regular basis. Got it. Or that's got to a litigious situation. I typically tap out of those because, the, well, <laughs> first of all, the actual, yeah, the actual right. I'm not, and I don't ever say I am. But the actual needle, how far are you going to move the needle and something like that yeah. is so minuscule. Yeah. I tell them straight up, you're wasting your time and money. Well, no, I want to do it. So I've done a couple of them, but they, you know. They move 6%. Right. They don't move 60%. Mm -hmm. um, typically, a company like like that, I would say you guys need to sit down and actually get an attorney and come to some, it's almost like a divorce proceeding, mm -hmm. and come up with some, have a separation, come up with some real strong terms with some heavy-duty penalties for not following through. Then if you get to that stage and you guys have basically agreed to disagree and you then want to move forward with the partnership, give me a call. I'll talk to you. That's typically how I would do those. For people that aren't at that level, what we come out of there, though, with, they've, they've aired the dirty laundry. I mean, I could go through stories, I mean, literally break down crying episodes in these things where people, it is a real catharsis. I mean, they get to the end and they're like, wow, I've never, you know, they never felt that good. Mm -hmm. Now, we've been in business together 15 years. Mm -hmm. I've never talked like this because there just wasn't that, that facilitation or that openness to do it. Um, so when they've got to the mindset that they know it's messed up, they know it's headed in the wrong direction. Uh, usually, typically, one of them wants out at some point. Maybe not right now, but they do want out. That's when the partner alignment kind of conversation can really make a big difference. Um, and then if you just have partners who are just, you know, they're trying to figure out what each person should be doing, it's great for that too, which happens, you know, in earlier stage businesses. Most of the businesses I've done that session with, though, are usually 10 plus years in business. Mm -hmm. uh, I have done husband and wife. I've actually done husband and wife divorced, but still running the business. I've actually done three brothers. So you got the triangle and three brothers. I'm not a big family business guy because I grew up in a family business, uh -huh. but I will work with them under certain arrangements. Uh -huh. um, and that's honestly where a lot more of that, I think, sure. the scumbag, loser type, you know, bring right, the family right. into yeah, the conversation, which messy. really, I, you, that's a no win for anybody. Mm -hmm. No win. Um, but if both partners, so what happens a lot, typically will happen is you call me up, you say, Scott, I heard about your partner alignment thing. You helped my buddy Jay. We want to do it. Great. I need to do a call with you and your, your partner, your business partner on the phone and go through what we're going to go through and make sure they're good with it. Well, I don't know that he's quite there yet. Right? Mm -hmm. That's a typical phone call. Totally. Okay. And I say, well, here's the thing. I'll, I'll send an email to you, copy him, go over what it is. And if you, if you, or if he or she is interested, then we'll do the phone call. Okay. So I, I've learned this from not doing this before. 
I've got to have the phone call with both on the phone and get that out, what I call pre-call, before we go into that day. So I've had people call me and three years later, they finally get the partner to come along. Mm-hmm. I've had people call me and we do the phone call and two weeks later they go, we're on. So it really is about, as I said, depends, depends where their head's at mm. for both parties. Because right. if, if the one party doesn't want to play ball, right. who cares? So I think when people hear this conversation, they're maybe what they're intuiting is that this is like where the outcome is that everybody is in harmony. We're going to keep running the business. A successful outcome could be separating though. Correct. Absolutely. But it's from the position of talking and the exchange in that unity to decide, hey, the best thing for everybody is to separate. So guys, if you're listening to this right now, if you're un, if you have a business partner and you're unhappy, you're frustrated you know that you need to have a conversation. Lean in. Reach out to somebody like Scott. Reach out to some kind of advisor. Do not sit around being unhappy. It is an absolute form of self-sabotage in the business. I just had to get that out of yeah. my system. Yeah, let me add to this. So I, I have a client who two months ago, we did the session, okay? The one partner, 50-50 partners, the one partner literally broke down in the session in a positive, meaning it was, mm-hmm. it was like it was they, breakthrough. they let it out. They let it out. I'm now helping them. I've already connected them with somebody. I'm now helping them sell the business. When we went into that, both of them said they didn't want out. They didn't want to sell. Mm-hmm. But through the process, I always say trust the process. Through the process, they both came to it. And the one who really, I didn't think would want to sell at all, actually was the one who's saying, we need to sell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, tr- the truth is, you cannot be co-founders in a business and efficiently sabotage this other person right. without imperiling all your own asset. That, that's delusional kind of Correct. thinking there. Correct. Correct. So I'd love to close talking a little bit about um, belief and mindset. You've heard of this distinction probably before of this uh, be, do, have versus have, do, be. Right, it's kind right. of what you talked about before. Right. You said you optimize now for first, happiness. Second. Enjoy life is one. Okay. And Make second. money. Mm-hmm. Do deals. Got it. So the question is, is that about self-actualization and just what's best for Scott? Or is that a heuristic and a framework that actually produces the best financial business outcomes? Yeah. So again, I, and I go into this in, in the book and I will at the presentation. So I ask people, one of the exercises we'll do at your event is I want you to write down your, I call it your focus filter. So what is your focus filter? For some people, it's one word. For some people, it's a sentence. For some people, it's three or four points. Uh, for me, it's enjoy life, make money, do deals. So, so I won't do anything in business that I don't enjoy. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not going to enjoy meeting the person, I'm not going to enjoy talking to the person, I'm not going to enjoy working with the person, uh, this may get into some of the moral things too. Maybe I don't enjoy the way they view the world. Sure. That doesn't mean they're a bad person or mm-hmm. I'm a great person or I'm a bad person. It just means we don't get it's along. Not fit. I'm not going to look at how I can make money in the, in the situation. Because mm-hmm. if I'm not, and then so I, I'm going to enjoy it. So great, we're going to have a great time. I like you. We like each other. But you know what? This deal, we're not going to make any money on it. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to make money. Mm-hmm. Or it takes too much money to make any money. Mm-hmm. So eh, I don't do it. Oh, okay, now it makes money. Numbers work. Everything, the ratios, the metrics, it's all good. Now let's talk about the deal. So I'm going to enjoy working with you. I'm going to enjoy, the, I'm going to enjoy being involved. It's going to make the money that I need to return or whatever. Now let's do the deal. Let's talk about the deal. What are the deal dynamics? What are the parameters? What are the actual agreements mm-hmm. to the deal? We get all three of those, we're off to the races. Um, and so my, like I said earlier, the, the deal I'm in, the property management world, met all three. That's why I'm in it. If I hadn't met all three, I wouldn't be in it. Mm-hmm. I, again, I, I turned down probably typically 80 to 90% of what I look at, which is a, is a pretty much hard and fast rule in angel investing. It's one in 10 mm-hmm. typically. Um, you know, again, 
I say this a lot in angel investing, nobody wants to be the first one to dance. Okay, so a lot of times what will happen is, and it really is a great opportunity, but guess what? I'm the first one to dance. Okay? <laughs> That's I, the lever less leverage. Correct, I just don't want to be the first one to dance. Meaning most, most of these kind of deals people get in on because of other people right. are already in it, right. or they've already seen great results, or they've had great results in other deals with this person. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, that's just, that's human nature. I mean, you, you typically are going to enjoy life and make money with a deal that's structured that way mm -hmm. versus just some random person who found you on LinkedIn and sends you a proposal. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's been my experience. Um, unless it's just a transactional, like a, you know, a land deal or, or a property or something, you might, you might be fine in those because sure. that's just a transactional. You're not really in business with the person. Um, being on the entrepreneur divide of this divide that you articulated between business owner versus entrepreneur, I have found that having multiple opportunities in front of me has really changed my mindset because it means that I can hold things a little bit looser, yeah. realizing that if today everything I had burned down, yeah. I'd be very sad. Yeah. You, you, you would not be seeing a happy Jordan, right. but right. the asset is me. The asset is up here, not the, the specific thing that I have. And having multiple business, it just clarifies that. Right. But the contrast to that is focus. Were you 100% focused when you had the PEO company? And do you think that you would have been deprecating the outcome to dabble in other stuff? Or do you think that there is some value in having optionality? Yeah, it's a good question. So in the beginning, and I believe this in any business, you have to be focused on that business. So that's why we were successful and didn't run out of money and made it to the black. So I talk in my book about, you know, four months in, we were cash flow positive, okay? We gave ourselves an eight-month window to make or break it, runway. If we didn't have, if we were cash flow positive after eight months, Karen and I had agreed that we were just going to shut it down and go back to working for the man and banks to take our houses. Mm -hmm. I and mean, that was our agreement. Sure. Side agreement wasn't in the operating agreement, but it was a side agreement. Because I said, look, if we... If, we were basically, we learned about this business through seeing a competitor. We were on the, the client side. So mm -hmm. we were using a PEO and we saw how horrific what they were doing was and what they were making. And we we're like, look, if we just, you know, build a better mousetrap, we just built this needle 5%, mm -hmm. we will kill it. And we did. Okay. So if, once you really get to that point where you say, you know, I, I'm okay with losing everything if it doesn't go, then it's, you know, desperation is a great motivator. I mean, you're, you're fine with moving on. Got it. Well, with that, I think we'll go ahead and close. We're going to be hearing from you in about a month at the PM Grow Summit. Super excited to have you coming out. I ask every interview, the interviewee the same question as we close. Scott Fritz, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? I think I answered this last time. It depends. <laughs> Take another crack at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think they're born. Yeah, I think they're born. All right, you know what? This is a man who, who knows what he believes. I fall in the same category. You can unpack it more. People have different reasons, different takes on it. But uh, thanks again for coming on, and we'll see you here in a month. All right, sounds great. Look forward to it. See you guys there.